The following podcast contains mature language and adult discussion. This week on Kayfabe, stories you're not supposed to hear. Again, kayfabe stories you're not supposed to hear. Thinking about Netflix today, I watched a, a series on. It was actually it was on Amazon, but um, just thinking about the concept of the binge, the binge generation, the streaming generation. I, I really think that. If you don't remember going to your local blockbuster to see what was in, right? Maybe you and your girl or your boy. Saturday night ahead of you. Grab some dinner. You go home and put on a video. (laughs) Put on a video. Your choices were limited to exactly what you had rented from the video store. I mean, I, 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 but these concepts would blow my kids' money or, or just bore them to death. The lamentings of an old man, the Grim Reaper darkening my doorstep as I lament about, if you didn't rewind, if you didn't rewind the disc, they charged you an extra dollar. Some places it was like $1.99 if you didn't rewind. Be kind, rewind. So your choices. Your viewing choices for that night were absolutely limited to what you rented at Blockbuster and 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 what was in, right? Even before Blockbuster came, they had the video stores, right? And they had the, the cover, the empty box cover with the, the tape behind it, if it was in. And if it wasn't in, it was just that lonely box cover staring at you. Now, that's that's a lost art. I mean... There was a sensory experience to it too, not just oh, oh, is the box is the box there? Is the is the tape behind the box? There was a smell to I don't know what it was. Was it the casing? Was it the actual physical tape? Was it the actual physical tape? I'm trying to remember. I'm a I'm a film school moron, so we cut tape back in the day. My audio classes, we physically cut tape. There was no digital. You actually had to know what the fuck you were doing. Not everything was a goddamn video game. But there was a smell to those stores that was very consistent. All video stores. Must have been the boxes. Must have been the cases. I don't know. If you worked in a video store, let me know. Hit me up on Twitter. uh, At KFabeP. At KFabeSean. And... You know, it was just, it was, there was a game to it. Is that in? Oh, it's still, it's still out. Damn it. I, I, there were times I stood. There were times I stood. Now listen up. 22 year old who fucking complains if your Wi Fi is a little slow and the second you hit the button to watch that Netflix original, it doesn't come up. I stood at the counter. And eyeballed 
all the the videotapes that they were taken out of the return box and stacking up to go back out to see if mine was ready to go back out because I would have I grabbed that bitch right at the counter. Say no no hold hold on hold on. The color of money, give me that. So no hold hold on though before you before you put those all back on the shelf. Cobra. Sylvester Stallone, give me that. There was a bit of a game to it. Maybe you went wild one night. I think you were limited to like three tapes you could rent in a, in a in one session. That was that was that was six hours of film that you could watch that night, roughly. You get to keep it two days. Too. I remember first walking into a blockbuster. There were thousands, thousands of tapes out. I was like, holy shit. Those rinky-dink video stores, those mom-and-pop video stores, had a few hundred titles, thousands, and, and dozens of copies of the most popular movies available, as opposed to like one or two in the old store. So, yeah, I'm sorry if I'm doing the old fart thing, but goddamn, man, there's... The, goddamn! A little cornet again. There's, there's something missing in the simplicity and the ease of just bringing up Netflix, Amazon Prime, clicking it and watching something. I don't know. They just changed things. And, and, and I didn't... When Netflix first came, there was a sense of, well, God, how, how can this be? This isn't going to last. There were no originals. There was no Netflix originals, Amazon originals. It was just they were putting out stuff that was had already run its course on like on demand, but now it was available streaming. So it was it, it was like just a big video instant video store, and I don't. I was like I don't know. I listen. I'm I'm in that industry too. I was like I don't know. This kind of. I remember sitting at lunch one day. We were doing. I was doing voice work on something with, and one of the girls that I would run into often on the circuit there and work with um, was Salinas Leva. Her name is. And we were having lunch and she's talking about, she just got booked for this gig. It was a Netflix original. I was like, you know, all the other actors like, Ooh, I was like, wow, Netflix original. What's what the fuck? What, <laughs> where's this going? She's like, yeah, yeah, it's about prison. You know, we play prison. She's like, I got my fingers crossed. I don't know, but this it's Orange is the New Black. She's like one of the principals on this thing. She becomes huge. And the other thing I said, like a fucking moron while I'm sitting there eating. You're talking about like upcoming upcoming auditions or whatever. And I I said, you know, I said, "I'm, I'm only doing this shit. I'm 35 now. It doesn't happen at 35. It might happen at 25, and you're still doing it at 35, but it doesn't happen at 35. And I distinctly remember Selena's covers her ears and goes, oh, my God, I can't listen to this. Right. Doesn't happen at 35. There's my fucking wisdom. Hop on my train, folks. I'll take you right over the edge. Uh, Endless choices. Endless choices. And you know what that leads to? Let me tell you what it leads to. When you're sitting down and you say, let's do a little Netflix and chill. 
you sit down with your wife, your husband, your Pomeranian, whatever the fuck you're watching with that night, and you start scrolling. You do the menu tango, man, all night. You're clicking and flipping. There's too many choices. You want the perfect choice. It's it's a little it's a little daunting. You've got too much to choose from. I I think that Netflix should limit you to five fucking things every day. You turn it on. Say, good evening, Sean. Here are your five selections for the night. And it could be smart targeted. It's based on stuff I've watched. It's stuff that Netflix thinks I'm going to enjoy. They're not going to put a baking show on there for me. They're not going to put a a, a magic show. They're going to put the the stuff, you know, aligned to what I want. And that's it. Those are my five for the day. I would actually select something and sit through it credit to credit. If I knew I only had a few choices, that that endless amount of entertainment, it does not work for me. It's too much. I can't handle the freedom. I gotta calm down. My blood pressure's going up. Let me know your most tragic Netflix night. How long have you done the menu for? How long have you done the menu? It's a form of entertainment itself. Ooh, they changed the cover for that one. Yeah. Oh, the icon used to look different for that one. Holy shit. That's the problem. That is the problem with us. It's the problem with my kids. They can't handle the freedom. If you like listening to podcasts, you probably like audiobooks. Listen, this is the audiobook revolution now. People love to hear the stories read to them, often by the authors. I always try to get ones that have the authors. And it's no different if you want to listen to my audiobooks. My audiobooks have four audiobooks out. Kayfabe stories you're not supposed to hear from a professional wrestling production company owner. The business of Kayfabe to go inside the company I ran for 12 years, still running, I guess. Uh, Father's Blood, which is a look at uh, parents, fathers in wrestling who had to work the road simultaneous to being a parent. And also Sophie's Journal, my first novel, a psychological thriller. Audible.com, the perfect place to go for all of these. Uh, You get a free book with a 30-day trial. Make them mine. Make your free trial book one of mine. I will convince you to go further. If not, if you don't like uh, Audible, prefer iTunes, iBooks as it's now known, all my work is there. The audiobook revolution is here. Check out Sean Oliver's audiobooks at audible.com, at iTunes, at iBooks. Let me tell you a story. All right, I'm here with my uh, my new friend uh, Robin Farzad. Um, you know, I gotta I gotta start by saying I spent some time in in Florida, extended time in Florida uh, this past summer, and I went to Coconut Grove for one friggin' reason. 
and he's on the phone with us right now, or he's live through the magic of of the web. <laughs> um, it was I I found a corner across from a park in Coconut Grove. It was my destination. This was not by accident. It was the sleepiest place. I could have buried a body. I don't think anyone would have seen me. And there was a somewhat nondescript hotel, maybe 10 stories across the street. And I went there because 40 years prior to my trip, this gentleman on the phone, investigative journalist extraordinaire, (laughs) is going to tell us what we would have seen in Coconut Grove. I'm not wrong in saying that right now there is not much of a scene in the Grove. Oh, no. And it's had its ebbs and flows. It had a, had a, I mean, it was the social scene of Miami in the late 70s and early 80s. What you would have seen if you were pulling up there 40 years ago, if it were a you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday night, there'd be a long winding line on the sidewalk by Bayshore, South Bayshore Drive. There was a recording studio next door called uh, Bayshore Recording that had the Eagles and uh, Joe Walsh and various people. It was like the Studio 54 of Miami. There was no skyline to speak of. Uh, South Beach, which is now internationally famous, was effectively where grandma and grandpa went to yeah, die. It was, right. It was, you know, if you see that documentary on Netflix, The Last Resort. So yeah, it was this great. is where, I mean, the glitterati of Miami, whether you're talking celebrities, the Eagles, Eartha Kitt, the cars, um, drug dealers, Saudi princes. They go straight from Miami International Airport to effectively, you know, Coconut Grove is like the West Village of Miami, and this was the place to be if you could get in. Yeah, at one time an arts community, maybe a little, uh, maybe a little hairy armpit kind of hippie type scene, right? That's right. That's right. A regular there was Crosby, uh, you know, Crosby from Crosby, Stills, David Nash Crosby, Young. David yeah. Crosby. He was uh, had a heavy free base cocaine problem. Um, you know, Joni Mitchell frequented the place. Coconut Grove was a very bohemian part of Miami. It was only annexed by Miami after the great hurricane of, of uh, 19, you know, it was around the 1920s. And um, I, I, can't, I can't believe it myself. I was just there. The city has changed so much over the past 20 years. And if you superimpose an aerial photo of 40 years ago versus what it is today, it's absolutely unrecognizable. So... How does this become, and I'm teasing this uh, for anyone who's not familiar with the book Hotel Scarface, um, though I've given you enough advance notice, you should be. Um, How does this become nothing short of the absolute central, it is the epicenter of South Florida's cocaine explosion, well, first the marijuana explosion on the fishing boats, but then the cocaine explosion of the turn of 70s into the 80s. Why the mutiny? How the mutiny? Why the Grove? I mean, it's South Florida, so it's an entrance point. But why there? You know, so many different things went into this kind of, uh, uh, you know, I want a perfect storm, witch's brew. You could take it back as far back as Miami's reputation, South Florida's reputation as kind of a bootlegger smuggler's paradise, a place for transient people. There were always schemes and schemers and the colorful town. But then you throw in the misadventure in Cuba and the Bay of Pigs crisis and Fidel Castro taking over Cuba. And lo and behold, by the early 60s, all these ticked off Cuban exiles who are in Miami are raring for a rematch. And when they don't get it, and the theater of the Cold War shifts to Vietnam, 
they effectively sublimate all of their CIA training, which taught them every bit of the thousands of miles of coastline, like it was child's play for them to evade the Coast Guard. So they turned to pot smuggling. And one thing led to another, and cocaine became a delicacy, and they turned to cocaine smuggling. So here and, are all these guys, right? You've got these guys ready ready for war, ready to go after Fidel. Um, oh, yeah. Promised that they would. And Yes, then, John F. Kennedy returned back to the Orange Bowl and delivered the flag. He said, we're going to return the flag of this brigade of people right. who we rescued, who we bailed out from Havana, and we're going to come back to Havana. A year later, he's dead. So here they are, full of piss and vinegar, um, and and now they're out in the cold, and they find this uh, this career, for lack of a better term. But they they find this outlet. They find this outlet. Let me, let me just say that Miami, by 1963-64, was the world's biggest CIA station. All sorts of front companies, and as I say, orphaned mercenaries. The, the CIA, if you look at intelligence parlance and and you know, the terms of trade, they call it the disposal problem. <laughs> what do you do with a freelancer or a mercenary after he's no longer needed? He goes yeah. off and he does other things. He does arms running, he does drugs running, and it all crashed, and various other things happen in Miami. You talk about the Mario refugees coming in 1980 if you want to deconstruct Scarface, um, the oil crisis, the perfect season-bound Miami Dolphins in 72. So many different things aligned and I think crashed into the lobby of this boutique it was a condominium initially, an apartment complex, and then he realized so much hot money was coming into Miami that it behooves me to build a club and a restaurant. And that becomes the Mutiny Hotel, and then the uh, the club of which we're speaking. wasn't just the hotel. The club was the draw, and it was called the Mutiny Club, and not so loosely based on the Babylon, uh, the Babylon Club, rather not so loosely based on this um, in Oliver Stone's Scarface, correct? That's right. And you know one thing that I wish I could have gotten confirmation from? I, I would never get calls returned by the Oliver Stone or De Palma people about it. But there's all this contemporaneous evidence that they tried to shoot it there. And they accidentally cued the Mutiny Club in the screenplay when they yes. wanted to cue the Babylon Club. And other other circumstantial things, letters of thanks to the staff. But um, I was shocked to see that Don Felder of the Eagles, who they recorded next door, and they famously bedded the entire staff <laughs> Uh, or many members of the staff of the mutiny. He That's said at every, hotel, at every Calif- hotel, though. At every at every hotel. hotel. Yeah. He he gave an interview and he said it should not have been called Hotel California. It should have been called Hotel Coconut Grove or Hotel Miami because mirrors on the ceiling, pink champagne on ice, and I all these it. other things. And that just drives me nuts because, um, you know, they recorded so much stuff next door. They had a track called Disco Strangler, which almost conforms perfectly to the the murder of a of a hostess at this club. It's it's all. It's all really haunting, and um, you know, I go back and I, I found this place because so many different police reports and informant records led back to this address. Mm. I, th- I, I we might be around the same age. I'm 46. Maybe you're younger than me. Um, a but, tad younger, yeah. Um, I grew up in a city called West New York, New Jersey, mm-hmm. w- which was um, the northern hub of the Cuban exile. Um, I don't know why, but our mayor at the time, Mayor DeFino, invited in Florida, said, you have a home in West New York. So um, I lived through the explosion of the Cubans and, you know, the pejorative of, no, you're a Mariolito, bro. You just came here like that. That was a real thing. That was a real deal. Now, they they splintered. Of course, you know, Miami was the first port. And then we had so many up in the northeast of Hudson County, uh, right in the shadow of Manhattan. Cubans then eventually made their money 
and moved out, went back to to Florida. Then we had mm-hmm. like a wave of of South Americans. Was the crew that we're talking about that 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 early influx seventy nine, eighty, eighty one before things got really crazy there? Was that almost exclusively Cuban? Oh gosh, I mean, I I, I look at Miami, and I mean the hotel. And uh, the waves of gangster that I actually dealt with, there are three generations of Cuban gangsters in particular in this case. There was the CIA vintage, which we talked about, the orphaned mercenaries, which a lot of these people came in the early 60s to the mid-60s. There are their children and nephews. They came on a boat lift called the Peter Pan Airlift. Their parents tried to smuggle them out of the country to the archdiocese in Florida. Mm-hmm. Then they came here, and they weren't as anti-Fidel as you know, as the, the the fathers and uncles were blowing each other up and blowing up Miami in the '60s and '70s. These guys were into fast boats and fast women and partying and cocaine. And by the time they ruled the mutiny in 1979, 1980, it was just practically perfect for the Mariel refugees to come in over the straits. And it's not unlike people arriving, you know, to New York and, and uh, uh, Lady Liberty and all yeah. that and saying, if you have if you have the name of this person, he'll be your rabbi or he'll be your he'll be your consigliere. He'll take care of you. And similarly, these these Mariel refugees came here with nothing but the shirt on their back, if even that, and said that, you know, Willie and Sal, that that either generation one or generation two will take care of me. And by then, it started becoming really violent. The Colombians tried to reassert control of right. the cocaine trade. There were Venezuelan freelancers. There were Puerto Rican hitmen. I mean, there were American. The, the biggest pot smugglers in Miami were two Jewish guys from the Philadelphia Boardwalk. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a gold rush. Was Jose Battle? That was the guy up here that I seemed in to the remember corporation running. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. That so I, yeah. I can't remember from the book. What was he in? The book yes, at all? he okay, well. yes he so he ran the Bolita racket in New Correct. York, and I had the author on. I love, I love T.J. English's T.J. English's book. Fan. Yeah, I had him on my radio show. Oh, great! And you, you know, we we interviewed him specifically about the corporation and uh, Jose Miguel Battle. Yes, was a you know Bay of Pigs veteran, and he sublimated his thing into the Bolita racket. A lot of his brethren went into cocaine and arms smuggling, and he dabbled in cocaine every now and then, and he had. Uh, a place in Miami, and he would frequent the mutiny every now and then, and he kept a mistress. But it was a lot of his fellow brigadesmen who truly indulged in in cocaine and marijuana, and and covered the Miami front. Robin, um, you, you grew up in in Florida. Uh, you went to college down there, right? Um, no, no, I went no. to college up north, um, oh, and I discovered the mutiny right before I went to college in '94. <laughs> but you're always posting Miami hurricane shit on your on your Twitter, though, aren't you? I'm a huge and frustrated Hurricanes fan. I was so spoiled growing up seeing them contend for the national championship every year. And it's been 17 years, and, um, you know, it's been a long drought. So who in your family says, as they hear what you're about to undertake, are you fucking crazy? Why don't you write about about Jimmy Johnson or write about the team? Then there's so much to write about down here. Why are you going to immerse yourself in this world? Who says that? Yeah, my mother did. My now wife did. Uh, a lot of uh, editors who I've dealt with in the past. I mean, I've covered Wall Street and finance and inter- fi- international finance and, and dry things that just would not sustain a, a book pursuit of this length and ambition. Um, this really haunted me when I saw it 25 years ago. And I had to have it. I When I realized that the possibility of the true nonfiction story was there and if I keep tugging on this string it's going to lead me to other things it just got so intoxicated it became a Captain Ahab like obsession for me had you even at that when it was just the germ of an idea did you 
did, were you aware of the scope that the story was going to take? Because, I mean, we've got CIA and and I, the the story of the Mutiny Club. I don't know if this is ridiculous to say, but it's it be, it's a microcosm for like the 80s financial market in a way. It, certainly in Florida, right? It's where we had everything. I like to say, you know, the the 15 second elevator pitch. This is where the Cold War crashed into the cocaine war and the SNL crisis and the sexual revolution. We had everything. This was like a layer cake of, of telling a Miami story. But in many ways, it was a love-hate letter to my hometown. And as I've said in, in speeches and talks that I gave, if you want to do a kind of a psychological analysis of why I did this, I came to this country from Iran in, uh, in that period, and we both had a shared trauma. Miami was the murder capital of the world by 1981. The streets were on fire. There were whole swaths. There were black plumes going up downtown. I was here. I didn't speak the language. Um, we fled from Iran. Uh, there was a big part of me that needed to go back and revisit and reopen 1980 Miami. Hmm. You talk about the, uh, you know, the story of Miami and and the the glitz and all that stuff. And what what we had in the 80s, as a kid of the 80s, we had Miami Vice to cling on to. Right. That was the that was the closest we got to the the drugs, the sex, the glitz and glamour of the city, as 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 uh, goofy as maybe it was but what were uh, were Don Johnson and uh, Philip Michael Thomas uh, not not up to some not up to no good there yeah Don Johnson's very open I mean in the interviews that he had a he had a cocaine problem he claims that he was clean by the time Miami Vice you know 83 84 happened uh for whatever it's worth he was a big party animal they'd see him all over the clubs uh the mutiny and cats and places in coconut grove he was known as a difficult person but Philip Michael Thomas himself lived at the Mutiny. He yeah. took over the entire fifth floor. He was best pals with uh, Glenn Fry, who knew the place from his partying days, the late Glenn Fry of the Eagles. And he was in that famous Miami Vice episode, Smuggler's Blues. Yeah. And another side story is, you know, by the time the Mutiny was over the hill, Philip Michael Thomas would park his his uh, his shitbox Machiavelli out front. He was an investor in a company that would take up like souped up Pontiacs and make them look like $200,000 Lamborghinis and it was called Machiavelli and it was kind of sad that a guy that was making like $30,000 an episode which was big back for the time like the dopers kind of scoffed at that like how sad that this place is the elevators doesn't work the elevators don't work and there's a purple Machiavelli parked out front but that's where you know it was like life imitating art which was imitating life and right. I think all that stuff always always happened at the mutiny. And by and large, if you saw a celeb at another table, you you left them alone. You might send them a bottle. You might do this. You wouldn't freak out. This was really like our Studio 54. Yeah, well, let's go back. Before the elevators didn't work and before things went downhill in the mid-'80s, let's go back. Take me. Let's, let's set it. Let's, let's get a setting here. Let's go back. We're sitting in the club, Robin. Who might we be looking at? Who's across at one of the other tables? Let's get the cast of characters down here. Who are we looking at? A lot of cigarette smoke, a lot of silk, a lot of polyester. Uh, maybe Halston Cologne, uh, Jordash, Sassoon, uh, people sniffling, sniffling a lot. Uh, quaaludes were very big back then. And uh, the music would be loud. The scene wouldn't really start until 11 or 12. And you'd walk in, and if you could make it up to the upper deck... Or the club, or if you could get through past the bouncer, you'd see these enormous leather seats and cushions. Very elegantly dressed women. Think Michelle Pfeiffer from Scarface. They got 
they got that kind of down pat, the thin cocaine blonde. That was really the look. Um, and uh, largely people would leave one another alone. I mean, the dopers kept their guns in the cushion. If you were really dangerous, you wouldn't dare come in the front. You would sneak in the back from the garage and the parking lot and the kitchen and hand Chef Manny maybe a tip of some cocaine or cash and discreetly come in through the kitchen and, and, and take a seat. You would order a drink. Um, you might see uh, an older person with his mistresses. Uh, the, 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 the waiter would come and set up a stack of, of champagne flutes that were cascading. And this is the way you would telegraph to people that money is no object. I'm here to party. And you've got you've got undercover detectives probably sitting very obvious on one side of the room. The place was too valuable to ever bust. Right. That would be like pissing on your on your, on your greatest asset because they could just go there and they could watch. Who sent champagne to that table? Who's that guy? Is that a new player? Well, he's talking to uh, El Mono, Monkey Morales right now. So he must be right. The cops used that place rather than brought it down, rather than bringing it, it down. Very, it was a very valuable ecosystem. I mean, it's the same reason. Why don't you, why don't you, when you're watching a National Geographic documentary, why doesn't the filmmaker intervene when the lioness is about to maul the elephant child? I mean, that's nature. <laughs> this was much more valuable to them in terms of observation and placing informants. And you couldn't possibly, with all the money that these dopers had, they could afford to bribe, and they did. The judicial system, law enforcement, several times over. So you had to be really tactical. If you weren't on the take, if you were honest, you had to plant informants. You had to protect certain dopers in the service of getting more violent criminals. And um, it was kind of understood that you wouldn't bust people over here. You would You would go there discreetly, Everybody knew why I was there. Everybody knew why you were there. Um, in fact, some of the major dopers would, would relish in that. They'd get up and toast the entire place and send bottles around if they knew they were being watched, as if to say, you know, F you. <laughs> I'm bigger than you. So, yeah, that was uh, it. Was kind of the unwritten code until it became so dangerous and so hot that the city clamped down and, and pushed him to sell. Who was your favorite character to write about, to research, to talk to people about? Was it Morales? Monkey Morales. Monkey Morales is the spirit animal of this book. He like he haunted, you know, this is 37 years after he died near Christmas in a bar shootout. Uh, he continues to haunt me and Miami. This person who was like a quadruple agent, a, a tragic, violent, romantic figure. He was a genius. He could memorize 30 license plates if you drive around town. He could quote military history. He had a medal from Golda Meir for helping the Israeli Mossad hunt Nazi fugitives in Paraguay. Um, he would cry whenever Casablanca would come on TV, and yet he was a very trained assassin. Um, he had no problems with using the garrot to strangle people. I mean, he's a... Yeah, I've, I've read everything there is out there about him, and I met subsequently his son after the book came out, and he continues to, he continues to spook me and, and Miami and what he meant. I mean, he was the ultimate... Ultimate agent, a, a person who initially worked for Fidel Castro, ran afoul of that, came here. He had his heart set on um, a rematch. He never got it, and then he became the ultimate um, lost spy. And I think it's a metaphor for all the different things that went wrong between Cuba and the United States. How deeply did you have to immerse yourself in the in in these in the in the lifestyle of these characters, I mean, you certainly there's the element of, of, uh, of like paper research or, or digital research, but we, did you ever feel like I, I got to go talk to this guy? I don't, I, I'm, it's dangerous or it's skeevy or. 
Yeah, I did. I did. But then I, I got to say that um, I won't say you have to take a clinical approach to it. I feel like I am a trespasser into their lives. I mean, unless it's murder, the statute of limitations has long since lapsed. A lot of these people have been forgotten. You'd be amazed. Like if I told you that the most infamous, you know, the founding father of freebase cocaine, you could find him in Coral Gables with white tube socks at an early bird dinner. You know, it's anticlimactic and the lost glory. And once you get past the initial reluctance, like, why are you coming after me? Once they see that you're serious and passionate about it, by the second or third visit, I think many of these people, in fact, the ones that initially told me to bug off, wanted to tell me everything and then some. Why? And because felt, they're, they're megalomaniacs or, or they felt that you were going to do them some kind of post-justice? What? I, I don't know the, the need to do it. Can you imagine being that rich, uh, throwing that kind of money around, being that liquid, owning the system, and then, you know, 30 years after that, being destitute and on Social Security and on Medicare? Um, can you imagine? I mean, can, can you imagine? Like one of these one of these main characters, Bernardo de Torres, a spy, he was placed in, in Dallas. He was linked to the Kennedy assassination, died homeless. He was hit by a car. Mm. Um, this is it's unbelievable to think that this would happen. The biggest cocaine dealer in 1980 Miami, Carlos Casada, just passed away two weeks ago. You know, degenerative brain disease. There's something about age and mortality and seeing many of your friends die and losing people to suicide and substance abuse. A lot of these people have found Christ. Uh, some of them found Medicare fraud <laughs> instead. Uh, and uh, no, seriously, Miami's Miami's a great I mean, the, the the most amazing story town and news town. But I'm I'm grateful. People opened up to me because I was persistent. I was going to have this story. What is it with your damn state? Let me tell you. We just got a vacation place in Palm Coast. And from the minute you come into that fucking state, the the billboards tell the story. First is divorce for men. Then it's, you know, the vasectomy. Surgery. The vasectomy. Yeah. And that, it's the triple crown. And then, then the plastic surgery. So... It's you know it's 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 asking every man to reinvent themselves when they cross over from Georgia. What is it? Hey, what does it say? A sunny place for shady people. You know the Ponzi state. I don't know. It's uh, I look. I I we came there because we left Iran and my aunt was in medical school in Miami. And I like many people observed much of this Friday nights growing up uh, watching Miami Vice. Uh, <laughs> and. I, I found this story by accident. It was right before I left the college in May of 1994. I don't want to spoil it, but when I realized that there was this portal, that there was this aperture, I, I just really had to jump in. The, the Mutiny Gold Card. What, what was the what was it called? Was it just called the Gold Card? The membership card. The membership card. Now, what that just granted you access to the club. Yeah, you anybody could buy a seventy-five dollar membership card. Oh. Uh, the question is, are you paying enough to get a table? Are you going to get past anybody? Do you have a truck with the hostesses, with the waitresses? Can you get into the upper deck? It was really pay to play. Right. A lot of people would be turned away. And that was part of the appeal, not unlike Rubel and, and Studio 54. Now, that that card came with a letter that welcomed you to the club. It, it almost sounded like you were you just joined a retirement community. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's fucking, they're filling champagne tubs with Dom Perignon and the, uh, the girls up there are servicing your every need. But the letter that comes with the card advertises the Sunday brunch, right? I think the quote that I love the most was the eye opener for, uh, for the Sunday brunch. What was that, four lines? Yes, 
I mean, there's a shadow and persona of this place. I talked to Burton Goldberg, the founder, before he passed away. Like, he claims, you know, this is how he would talk, by the way. Robin, I had no idea. I was creating a film set, and this is what I created for people. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, plausible de- plausible deniability. And you could, you, you could say these things, but you knew that he built this thing at the perfect place to accept and absorb this windfall of hot cash. There's one stat I share more than anything else in this book is that by 1980, the Federal Reserve of Miami had a $5 billion cash surplus, which was more than the other Federal Reserve Banks of the United States. You talk about New York, San Francisco, Dallas combined. So much hot cash was floating around. You take the economics of one kilo of cocaine, you know, you can you could get it for anywhere from $1,000 to $10,000, $12,000 wholesale. And then by the time you cut it and stepped on it enough times, you could, you, you know, street value, you're talking three, $400,000. Did you ever read Narconomics? No. It's, uh, it's, it was written by a writer, I think, for Business Week. His name escapes me. But he embedded himself in the Mexican cartels because it's, it, he wanted to look at the, the one business that seemed to be recession-proof and was never wavering. And the whole thing is, is basically business lessons from the cartel. And one of the most fascinating chapters, he takes a coca leaf and tracks it from Bolivia straight through to New York and the increases at each level it was it was fascinating a, a gigantic bale of the stuff is like 300 bucks maybe worth 300 bucks in Bolivia once it's shipped over moved over to be processed wherever that is then it starts to get exponentially more but just like you were talking about if anyone out there wants to truly study well the- no actually look at the YouTube video it'll blow your mind there are various tutorials that show cocoa leaf being plucked meticulously and then being uh, shredded with these uh, you know, garden shredders and yeah. then stepped on and then solvents. And the precipitate from it is so little. Do you know I mean, how much <laughs> forest you have to pull down to get a kilo of cocaine? It's, it's incredibly labor-intensive, but incredibly lucrative. Yes. I think one stat was Pablo Escobar at his peak was spending $1,000 a month on rubber bands for cash yeah. alone. God bless him. Just like the publishing industry, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, listen, I, I looked for memorabilia. I got that fucking, you hooked me that much. Let me just tell everybody, I read Hotel Scarface, available everywhere, by the way. I think it's in paperback now, too, isn't it? It is. Um, I read it, I finished it, I ruminated, and then I read it again. <laughs> it It absolutely reads, and I guess this is the biggest compliment a writer can give another writer, it was packed with information, statistics, numbers, but it read like narrative fiction. It was it was su- it was such a ride. You did take a ride. It it did, it was not a magazine article, which some are wont to do. So kudos to you for that. But I thank looked, you, Sean. I looked for memorabilia to have a piece of this place. I can't find anything. No gold cards. Did you get anything? And what are you going to send me? Um, I will try to get the hotel had uh, the gold license plate stamped out again. I can have them send you one. And uh, they're apparently printing stickers out. I had a bunch of T-shirts printed that sold out immediately. I had the original uh, poly blend, polyester, Hotel Scarface, Mutiny Club T-shirts. But no, you can find some matchbooks. Uh, which were ubiquitous. You can't find anybody who's willing to part ways with their membership card. No. 
And you know yeah. what's the real the real trophy is in 1990 when this place was abandoned that the auction house, the Savings and Loan Disposal Corporation, came in and sold every fixture from every room, every oh. disco ball, every every uh, you know space console, every you know thing that's been in an orgy, and that has got to be around Miami and South America. And I kind of part of me has wanted to put an ad out and said if you have any of this if you're in possession or know anybody who is it was i think the sadler auction group take a photo and post it on insta <laughs> i'm sure your wife would would welcome a gigantic lime green shag rug in the bedroom no yeah you know it's phase uh one of the room service boys told me that people would fight for dibs on who would clean the biggest dopers rooms after the parties because for the leftovers chunks chunks of hash cash uh, one doper, Mario Tabrawi, found a, a bag, a Pan Am bag full of cash behind uh, one of the curtains. And he thought it was Providence that, you know, I need to go and buy a shrimp boat and become an even bigger doper. You know? Wow. Yeah. Get me that license plate. Listen, the implosion happens and it's 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 because of abundance. Right. The violence now is starting to happen in the club and it 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 goes from from a scene to a scourge pretty quickly by 83 84 this is done right it's done and he sold it at the end of 83 and um you know a couple of other things happened you had copycat people they set up clubs regines uh cats coconut grove there were all these people that were saying why should one place hoover up all this money um suzanne's one of the managers went and started her own club and they started siphoning away if you look at the ads they said our clientele is exclusive i.e. not Marielle. And so oh. all that was left for, for this place was the kind of the budding Tony Montana's by 84, by 85, another character named Coca-Cola Yero, who was the, the, the refugee that was busted and they followed him into the late mutiny right before it died. What were the legal concerns for you? Any snafus, anything that the, that the publisher said, hell no, you got to pull that out? You won't believe it that the attorney, the publisher attorney said, we. <laughs> one of the biggest worries for them was that um, we're quoting lyrics. I was like, you're kidding. <laughs> like, no, because they know that it's all on you. <laughs> it's kind of all on you. <laughs> yeah, there was a scene. It was a bit controversial as the bouncer was telling me about, you know, the gun to monkey Morales' head initially. And he's tiny time stamp that scene and music is wafting from the club. And I quoted Christopher Cross's Ride Like the Wind. And people just got up in arms about that. I was like, wow. It was definitely a that. lesson, you know? But I, I took meticulous notes, meticulous footnoting. I was paranoid about it. I, I went to sleep with this story every night as I closed my eyes and I filtered it and ran it through various different things. And, and um, you know, in the end, I got to write the book that I wanted to write. Uh, that's important. I think other publishers would have pushed you to write, oh, it's a whorehouse, write about it this way, or right. write about one character, or who's the hero of the story. Um, some some suggested writing it in the first person. Um, I can't believe that. From whose um, perspective? I, From whose point of view? Well, almost if you you would have done it as Finding Mutiny, would you, would it have been my perspective as the as the honor student, as the immigrant kid, kind of writing into this, like a Nick in the Great Gatsby? But they said, no, that's a little cliche. Um, you know, um, there are other other things like you know the the Scarface thing is very interesting. I'm 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 still very you know if if. This does see a life with a film adaptation. I love this idea of deconstructing Tony Montana because he was, uh, by all by all measures here, he was a composite of who Brian De Palma and Oliver Stone witnessed at the Mutiny Club. Though, F. Murray Abraham 
may have been playing Monkey Mon- Morales. Monkey Morales. I do right? believe that. Yeah. The, the younger visual. doper said it's a little too uncanny that uh, Carlene Casada looked exactly like. Was it uh, Frank Langella? What was the guy's no, last Robert name? No, Robert Loggia. Robert Loggia. Robert Loggia. I always forget that. And then Tony Montana is a ringer actually for Mario Tabrawi. If you go look up his photo, he was the one with the cats and everything. Yeah. Um, and, and Oliver Stone himself was coming off of a cocaine binge. So a lot of this stuff blurs, you know, reality, fiction, nonfiction. So uh, so the book comes out. What's the what's the instant feedback from the community? This is your home state now, okay? So you might be burning some bridges. What's the feedback from Florida? I'm not gonna lie, I didn't get. I got a muted feedback. You know, I I didn't get that much feedback. I thought it would be a bigger splash. I think the city has has uh, really moved on. Um, I I cherish every compliment that I get for this. When people reach out, like a fellow journalist reached out today and said, I picked up a review copy in the newsroom and I I couldn't put it down. Um, I thought it would be a a bigger splash, frankly, you know, the closest thing to the true story of Scarface, but it it didn't make the impact that I had imagined. It didn't sell as well as I thought it would. Well, maybe it will now. Um, It's, it's, it's certainly, uh, it's not on the merits of the book that, that there's been any uh, shortcoming. It's, it's so well done. And I, I, I don't know. I, I can't believe there's not a market for it. Is it, is there a Netflix life or an Amazon life that that Amazon yeah, Prime? Yeah, uh, it was optioned for a film a month after it came out, a, a, a limited uh, premium cable series, series or yeah. streaming series, and that option just lapsed. And I have my fingers crossed that somebody would get serious and step up because we, you know, we left so much on the cutting room floor. And I get asked by so many people that help with this book, and many who've since passed away since the book came out. And I've made promises to people that we're not going to short shrift some of the stories. For example, one of the femme fatales, uh, uh, waitresses, you know, beautiful, helpful woman in the book was dating a doper. And by the time the DEA, you know, chased them, she was on the lam for a decade. And the sisterhood of fellow hostesses helped her hide across the country, helped get messages to her. There are all these other stories of, you know, kind of like how boogie nights fell apart. Um, um, you know, Molly, Molly, who got back in touch with the cop who saved her life out of this book. Um, the ver- the various things that I would love to see get, you know, 2D or 3D treatment. Well, I think it'll happen. Here's the idea, though. You ready? We're going to do the, the we're going to do the experience, the Mutiny Club experience. All right. We're going to we're going to rent a few floors, load them with gorgeous women. Uh, Dom Perignon, we don't have to get Dom Perignon, we can get a cheaper version. And for various tiers in pricing, you can have the hotel mutiny experience. All right, we'll fly people down, charge them, you get to spend a weekend. Listen, it could work. I couldn't get my wife to stay there. I When we were in Florida, I said, <sighs> I, fa- I, have to ex- I have to give you the lineage of how I did this. I had to be very slick with it. She likes to go away, she likes to try new places, right? So... So we're going to be in Florida anyway for like a, a six weeks. So I said, let's, I said, hey, I found a place. I, I, I want to show you this place. So I put on YouTube these these clips of, I guess they were like little travel logs from local uh, broadcasts or maybe even stuff that the that the Mutiny Hotel, it's, it's since been remade. We should say this. It's since been remade, uh, done over. It's got no connection to the rather lurid past mm-hmm. we're talking about. Um, it's been remodeled and you know, it's, it's on the up and up. It's a legitimate place of business. 
as far as I know. Yeah, I mean, it was abandoned for more than a decade. Right, okay. And you know, it was gutted and completely cleaned out. There's a nod, there's a restaurant in it that you know they kind of stole the character from the book, Table 14, it's called. Uh, but it's otherwise sterile, sedate, older people live there. The whole scene has moved across. Yeah. You know, the, the, the Art Deco movement in South Beach really arrived in the late 80s, and South Beach took over, and now downtown Miami and Wynwood and whole other districts have taken over coconut grove is, is definitely in a funk so i, I play um, i play in the video and the you know the, the place looks okay the sweets are like you know okay average sweets they're moderately priced like 150 200 dollars or something she's like why well, i don't get it what why are you showing me this and then rob and i put on your interview on one of the florida stations that you did like the local news like the morning news yeah, yeah. deal I said, this is the place you just saw. Imagine the ghosts sleeping. She's like, I don't want to feel that shit. But so did you ever do that? Did you ever stay there and just try to kind of by osmosis see if anyone would visit you? I tried. Uh, I tried when I was writing it. I tried to get that spirit. Um, it, it just wasn't there. Um, Molly, there. when you know, what's interesting is that Molly, when we went back for a staff reunion, uh, said that the lobby still smells the same, which is pretty incredible. If this place was abandoned out, cored out, abandoned for 10 years, survived a hurricane, um, dereliction and everything, um, I, I definitely think it's a haunted place. The ghosts linger. Robin, tell everyone where we can follow you on Twitter. Where can we uh, Where can we see what you've got going on? Yeah, you could go on. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Robin Farzad. You could follow the hashtag Hotel Scarface. You could go to hotelscarface.com. Um, you can w w see all the press coverage, the BBC radio interviews, NPR, PBS. Um, yeah. Folks, please read it. Hotel Scarface. Grab it in any form you can. This, I actually have the audio book as well, um, which is a good read, uh, a good listen. And uh, it's done. It's done the way these things sh should be done. Hey, you guys are enjoying the show as much as you tell me you are on Twitter and Facebook and everywhere else. Good. Be a patron of this show. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. Put a couple of bucks where your mouth is. You can consider to co-creator with me. I'll give you a shout out on the air. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. All right. Robin Farzad, Hotel Scarface. God, you got to read it. You got to read it. I'm passionate about the book. I hope it takes off. hope it takes off. Um, found Objects. I was trying to get a little Twitter in here for you guys. Found Objects asks me, uh, he says, podcast question, my bro was an extra on Disclosure and said Michael Douglas's presence dominated every room he entered. You meet anyone else like that? Not just famous, but with overwhelming charisma. He, I'm assuming he means other than myself. Um, yeah, listen, if you're talking about the wrestling business, so many of these old school guys have that because you needed it in order to draw money. You had to talk people into the arenas, and you had to do that by reaching through the TV set, okay? So the camera had to love you. You had to be good at improv, right, because this is back when they weren't writing for everybody, writing everybody's lines. So you really had to be special. And um, so I would say anybody from the 70s and 80s, any of the workers that were successful in the 70s and 80s have 
overwhelming charisma. The camera loves them, and uh, sometimes it translates to the room because, I mean, these guys worked in front of 20,000 people, you know, so you had to talk about reaching the back of the auditorium. So they're big personalities. Most of the successful successful guys, you could say that about. Now, in the acting world, sometimes the camera loves folks that are in person almost invisible. So that's happened a lot, too. But there are people who, who fill the room. I mean, Armand Asante is one that comes to mind. I didn't work with him in a scene, but I worked with him. He was a... He was produced. I don't know if he was a producer on the film. Listen, there was a film. It's the worst fucking thing I ever worked on. It's called The Whole World at Our Feet. Okay? It was an action film from Kazakhstan. And it was in. It was not in English. I guess it was in Russian. So they needed actors like me to come in and voice these characters. So I get the call to go to uh, uh, Studio Soundtracks on uh, in Midtown, 20-something Street. No, this was actually the Broadway location. There was two of them on, on uh, Broadway, 20, between 21st and 22nd. And um, meet Armand DeSante. He was the star of the film, and I don't know if he was producing or not, but he was going to help cast the folks that were going to do the translation. So he's there and he's just, he's just one of those guys, really charismatic, big, just a big, not physically big, uh, just a big personality fills the room. I mean, he just, he's not loud. He's not boisterous, but he's just, he, you know, when he's in the room, can't explain it. It's one of those things. But while we're on the film, I may as well tell you, it, it, the audition was fine. I mean, I went into a booth. They gave me some lines to read against the screen, you know, the translation for, you know, and they got to give you a little background because you're, you're voicing a character that already exists, but still you've got to, you know, your inflection and all that stuff. You got to know where they're coming from and where they're going. So Armand is there and he gives me some direction and references. Uh, he's like, oh, think, uh, think Mercutio, think, think Shakespeare. I was like, okay, sure. But anyway, it's an action. It's very clearly an action film. And from the dialogue I'm saying, there's a touch, more than a touch, of nonsensical mysticism in this fucking thing. It is, I guess it it pits itself, think like, think First Blood with the Karate Kid told through the eyes of a violent yoga instructor. Okay? Has that soup for you right there. So this thing is, I'll read you the tagline from from IMDb talk talk about this 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 should give you every indication about the film that I had to deal and and so I go to do the session and the director's there okay so here's here's the film here's the plot quote only one lusted glance brings Aaliyah to the events throwing her into the criminal ocean but in the whirliging of passions and turmoil, when she finds herself at the verge of fatality, it's only her true love that is the only rescue. Now the most important thing for Aaliyah is to preserve the honor and dignity, and the whole world will be at our feet. What the fuck are you talking about? That's what they went with. That was the official plot summary. 
So if this is any indication of what I had to deal with that day, so I go in, I get the part or parts, and I'm voicing a few characters, and oh, it's it, I have I have the engineer in the booth who I'd worked with before, and I like him very much, and he he knows what I'm going through. By halfway through this session, he's feeling my pain, and he in my ear is giving me a dose of reality. Armand isn't there for the session; it's just. Uh, the engineer who will remain nameless in the booth, myself, and the director beside me with his translator. So, Salamat, uh, very excitable gentleman, is next to me on my left on the couch with his translator and I think his wife or girlfriend, and then in my ear from the booth is the engineer. Now... I would get direction, which maybe was getting muddled, muddied in the in the translation. Things like, yes, be very excited, uh, very, very, very big, but quiet. That type of shit. And you'd do a take, and you'd throw it out there, and you'd try to have some kind of intensity and quiet during the shootout or whatever's going on. It's a lot of action shit going on and saying a lot of things like, trust the sky and you will land at your desired point. And, you know, it's like shit like that. Like, so you're trying that and you, you know the translators you know Salamat's like pumping his fists in the air like a lot of thumbs ups and pumps and 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 passionate passionately evo- uh evocation while while I'm speaking and his translator says um yes he said uh good but uh do it louder you know just like and i'd be like really is that what he said so now the engineer's in my ear going dude no one's gonna see it just whatever you're doing is fine so i i and i'm trying to keep a straight face while we're talking in code me and the engineer about you know how i want to put my head through a wall and he's excited like this is, he believed in this so much this director maybe he wrote it too i'm looking right now yeah yeah he wrote the screenplay too so this was you know this was a fistful of truth for my brother Salamat next to me. Listen, the session eventually ended. And listen, it's all about one thing, brothers and sisters. The paycheck cleared. That's it. I'm a hoa. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. The films don't have to be good. The paycheck has to clear. Listen, I'm sure somebody enjoyed uh, the world at, at our feet. The whole world at our feet. I was not one of them. I I worked on it, and I was not one of them. I was not passionately invested in the whole world at our feet. But listen, I was hired there to to do a job, and I went and I did the job. Look, I am Sheik Baby. I did the job. Patreon.com slash Kayfabe Podcast. You could be one of the patrons. You could be one of the people helping to produce this programming. People like Tyson Brown, Todd Mogul, Terry Lynn, Steak Sauce, Salvatore Martone, Ralph Ramirez, Paul Rogers, Patrick Corbett, Matthew Chimura, Coulter Mann, Chris, Ian Roberts, Harrison Lee, Big Dave, Alyssa and Change, just some of my friends on Patreon. You can be there too. All right, come back next week for more Kayfabe stories you're not supposed to hear. This podcast is a production 
of Sean Oliver Media, copyright 2019, music by the great Kevin McLeod, licensed on Creative Commons. We will see you next time.